Reproducibility is an important part of the scientific process. Find something interesting or compelling or groundbreaking once, great. But for the work to have legs, other scholars have to be able to reproduce your work. If they can't, then there's a problem. The problem of reproducibility is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former and founding chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is journalist Richard Harris. Harris is an award-winning correspondent on NPR's Science Desk and has covered everything from SARS to climate change to the aftermath of the 2011 Japanese tsunami. In 2017, Harris published the book, now out in paperback, Rigor Mortis, How Sloppy Science Creates Worthless Cures, Crushes Hope, and Wastes Billion. On that uplifting note, thank you so much for being here this morning, Richard. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Good morning. Uh, Just to start us off generally, what made you decide to write the book? Well, I was interested in sort of understanding what was going on in the world of biomedical research. I hadn't been covering that particular topic for about a decade when I was asked to go back and do it again. And when I started noodling around, of course, being a, a journalist, uh, one thing I decided to do is follow the money. And uh, and and uh, the money told me a kind of an alarming story about the support for biomedical research in this country, which was that between 1998 and 2003 or thereabouts, uh, the amount of money for the for the National Institutes of Health, which is the major funding of biomedical research, that amount of money from the federal government doubled. Uh, And then Congress said, oh, we've done our job. We don't have to worry about it anymore. And they basically flatlined the budget. And for the next 10 years, the the numbers stayed flat. But of course, research got more and more expensive. So in spending power, the amount of money that was available for biomedical research declined by 20%. So after this huge sugar rush of having all this new money and people were building labs all over the place... um, uh, I thought this can't be good, and and so I started reporting for NPR about what the consequences of that were, and that led me into uh, into this uh, bubbling controversy, the bubbling issue that is sometimes called the the reproducibility crisis. I don't particularly like that term, but uh, it, it was out there and, and floating around, and so uh, uh, I realized after doing some stories for NPR, there was a book in this, so uh, I took a year off to write the book. So you, you say you don't like the term reproducibility crisis. So I, I'd, I'd like to give you an opportunity to rename it. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I, it's easier to complain about something, of course, but uh, <laughs> the uh, I don't like the word crisis because, in fact, uh, it's a it's a it's an awakening. You could call it a reproducibility awakening. That basically these issues are not at all new to science. Uh, we become aware of it. And I actually think that's a good thing, despite the the scary sounding title of my book, which, by the way, I actually wanted to call science friction because I think this is slowing down science but not stopping science, and it's not a crisis. Uh, I I think what we really are in a position to do now is recognize that these are problems that can be addressed, that if we pay attention, we can do better, and we can accelerate the progress of science instead of having these problems slow it down. You talked, uh, I I watched a Google talk where you talked about uh, science education and some of the problems with it. uh, And uh, could you talk about ways that that might be improved and what some of those problems are? Uh, And maybe here is where you could talk about some of the problems we have with uh, the pressure for academics to, uh, to publish as well. Right. Well, that's a that's that's a, that's a multiple big questions. But uh, yeah, I think part of what happens is uh, 
uh, scientists go into uh, into into the field, uh, particularly m my focus here is on is an area of science called uh, preclinical biomedical research. So this is biomedical research. This is not by and large involving human beings. It's mostly involving laboratory results. But these laboratory results provide all of the ideas the, uh, for potential new drugs, new treatments, new ways of understanding disease. So it's an important part of of of, of research. But it's this area that has really been uh, clobbered by uh, this this funding problem I mentioned earlier. What it does is it basically creates a very hyper-competitive environment for people, and uh, and 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 the reality is the education of postdocs and graduate students is uh, is not completely up to snuff. They uh, uh, biologists, I think, in the old days, biologists went into biology because they didn't have to do math. So they, there's an old saying that you know if, if if you have to do statistics, think of a better experiment. So uh, that was that was back in the day. Yeah. Uh, I know that may, that must warm your heart, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but the, the the reality is that uh, biologists don't get really solid grounding in in math. It's not part of the curriculum for most scientists uh, in this at least in this field, and uh, and nor do they really get great experience in uh, or or sort of in learning methodology other than from their from their scientists from the whose labs they work in. So uh, so basically. You know, and of course, half of all biologists are, are below average, right? So, uh, just by definition. So, uh, so, so the, this is an issue that uh, the 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 academic education of uh, young scientists isn't really robust enough. And the NIH actually said, oh, let's take the best training out there for teaching methodology and stuff like that and, and replicate it across the country. So they put out a request for information. Who's got the best courses in this stuff? And they basically got crickets back. Nobody really had a course uh, that they could identify as really being a really good reliable class on on scientific methodology people do things like saying well you know how if ask you know how many mice you mice did you use in your study they said i used six and they said why did you use six this is well that's what everybody uses and it's not based on on some math that you could do to figure out what what would be an appropriate sample size considering you know what endpoint you're looking at and so on so that's so uh so that's the educational piece of this I'd like to just just rewind us back a little bit to to talk about kind of the you're talking about this this issue and I don't know that we've ever really we've defined it yet you know this this idea of uh, this reproducibility awakening so now now I'm using your expression so <laughs> I'm good all right so we're 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 rebranding as we speak here Richard so mm -hmm. as, as as you think about this this uh, reproducibility issues and awakening you you identify some of these some causes including funding which you've already mentioned but I'd I'd like you to just take a minute. And give us a quick quick definition of what you mean by this this issue, and then some of the reasons why it's it's emerged. Right. Well, as Rosemary mentioned at the outset, uh, you science needs to be uh, reproducible. You want to be able to have somebody else do your experiment to make sure that your results are real. And uh, and and this is a this is not unfortunately rewarded in the world of science very much. If uh, you get rewarded for the big flashy results uh, and not necessarily for uh, trudging behind and doing Doing equally important work, one could argue, which was validating whether somebody else's work actually holds up. People really want uh, that that shiny new result uh, as a as a way of getting uh, career advancement, uh, funding for future projects, and so on. And uh, unfortunately, the this really important part of science is not very well rewarded. And I will say that uh, just because a p paper is not reproduced, or even somebody tries and can't reproduce it, it's not 
at that point evident necessarily who's right and who's wrong, right? Uh, so maybe maybe the person who's tried to reproduce it is not correct. So uh, so this is a science is an ongoing process, right? And in the long run, uh, we eventually figure out uh, what's uh, closer to the truth. Uh, and but in the short run, there's a there's a bit of a, a fog of war, if you will, about of information. What's really right? What's really not? People. Uh, uh, cling fir firmly to their own ideas and theories and and hopes and aspirations and so on and of course those are very human um, emotions that all of us share for no matter what field we're in but they can actually uh, uh, deceive the scientist inadvertently into believing something uh, to basically to see something that they want to see but not is not necessarily something that's there so so this is this the scientific process is not uh, 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 without ups and downs and backs and forth and, you know, two steps forward, one step back, et cetera. And, and we're seeing this play out here in, in, in reproducibility. And it's hard to know exactly how much of this is going on, but uh, there's a lot of suggestions that in this area of biomedical research, could be about half of everything that's published actually is not going to stand the test of time. It's a pretty big number. So in the academic journal field in this area, which is not my area, is there resistance to journals publishing reproduced reproducibility studies because there's not glamour in it so you know if you want to reproduce somebody's somebody's somebody else's results try to get that result are the journals accepting of this or is this is this uh, an area where the the journals have some some culpability as well yeah uh, it's it's a, it's a mixed bag i think scientists think that it's much harder to publish the stuff than it is, and I think they may have given up trying because the major journals, uh, the like Science and Nature and Cell, which are sort of the, the marquee journals in this world of, of biology, those journals really don't want to publish this kind of stuff because they gauge their success based on something called an impact factor, and so they average the impact of, of, of any given article, how many people cite it, and so on, and they know that these kinds of studies do not get a lot of citations, so they say, uh, even if it's an important study, they figure uh, it's not going to get many citations. It's not going to help our impact factor, and that's and that's actually a systemic problem uh, that's that's pretty egregious. And uh, and and really, you know, it's because they're for-profit entities. It's not they're not here to serve the purpose of science. They're here to make money, and they make lots of money. Uh, there are other journals though that do publish these things. There's a whole suite of journals called the PLOS journals, uh, which are not-for-profit, and uh, and they do actually value this kind of stuff. And so so there clearly are places where you can get it published and get it out in the literature and hope people can find it. So it's it's not a black and white issue, but it clearly is. A, it's been a complication, and it's been a driving factor in this as well. You know, it seems like some of the papers that have come out, whether it's in psychology or in, in the sciences, where there's been a failure to, rep, to reproduce published work, have, have had a big splash. That's true. There have, some of those have had a big splash, and actually, the the, the probably the, the most notable paper in psychology, which was an attempt to reproduce about a hundred sort of popular papers, uh, and was only really able to replicate about a third of them. That was actually published in Science. So if you, so, if you get a flashy enough result, even if it's about reproducibility, you can get it in a big journal. But that was a pretty exceptional study. It wasn't a it wasn't just sort of a, a one on one. Let's see if we can reproduce an individual study. Although you mentioned some of the marquee journals, but some of the marquee journals, and, and whether they're the biology marquee journals that you mentioned or some of the medical journals, the, this idea of embargoing an individual study results and then releasing it with a lot of fanfare seems to, to really say that, boy, it's better to be first than, you know, it's better to be first to the finish line. And it really reinforces that. 
Absolutely, it does. And uh, that's, you know, unfortunately, in an ideal world, you might want scientists to be more cooperative and less competitive. But on the other hand, that's not the way we fund science. That's not the way we grant tenure. That's not the way that the system works. So, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, you know, a lot of these issues are not because scientists are behaving badly. I think by and large, scientists are not behaving badly, but it's, uh, uh, I think the system sets sets us up and, you know, it's a, it's a, a culture that unfortunately creates a lot of these problems. And, you know, the solutions ultimately involve trying to find a way to correct uh, this culture. But, you know, that's a, that's a tall order, but people are working on it. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with NPR science correspondent Richard Harris. I'm kind of interested. This is a show, Richard, that's about the relationship between stats and stories. And uh, you're a journalist, and uh, you talk about scientists building stories that approximate truth. I think you're a critic. Uh, you, you, you believe that there's no such thing as absolute truth, and I I talk about the same thing when I teach journalism students about objectivity and its limitations. And what we ultimately have as journalists is storytelling, you know, and how do you tell the sort of best story you can. Can you talk about how you think about storytelling in relationship to uh, telling the general public and your NPR audience about science and the work that scientists do? Sure. I mean, it, uh, science is ultimately a human endeavor. It's a quest for knowledge. It's exciting. It's interesting. It's often or it can be useful uh, with medical advances and things like that. But uh, and but as you say, you know, truth with a capital T is uh, is a fraught topic because science is always improving on our knowledge, but is never reaching some some idealized point of of complete understanding right so uh, but that's not to say it's not useful and or that conclusions should all be doubted i mean for example uh, i've spent a lot of my career writing about climate change and uh, there's even though there's you know those are projections so you could never know for sure what the future is going to be like there's a there are many lines of evidence that all point in the same direction looking at whether you're looking at the history or our understanding of how atmospheric uh, chemistry works or up and down the line, uh, you can build a very strong case that this is something that we should be worried about and we should be taking steps to uh, uh, to deal with. So so uh, I want to distinguish between people who would say, well, if nothing is knowable, we don't have to do anything. That's clearly not, not the case. And uh, I just remind people that uh, if, you know, if they, if they go too far down that road, well, they sh certainly shouldn't get on an airplane because they would have no reason to really believe that physics will actually hold the airplane up for its entire flight. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so yeah, but so, so I do approach storytelling as, you know, a quest for the truth as I can, as I can. And I ask people to tell their own stories about how they got interested in, in an idea, how they're pursuing it. And I talk to other people about, you know, why they may not believe it or what questions they have and so on. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I, of course, strive never to say, well, this is the final, final, final word on anything. But, uh, but you know, there's some st studies are stronger than others. And it's part of my job to assess that as well and say, you know, this is really pretty good evidence for this, uh, for this idea. Um, but, you know, but I, uh, I certainly don't use the word proof. So t can tell us your story about how you got into this. And... Uh... Well, uh, let's see. Uh, this, this. Now you're talking ancient history, uh, but uh, That's right. well, I, there, there aren't enough Richard Harris's in the world doing this kind of work. So those of us who in journalism who 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 know some of the 
problems that journalists journalists have in telling these kinds of stories. So I'm interested in in that journey, how you got to do this. Sure. Well, I was a uh, an undergraduate uh, biology major. That's my degree, and uh, I love thinking about science. But I didn't particularly like working in the lab, and I didn't uh, even back then. This was in the late 1970s. The idea of the the rat race to get grants and so on already seemed a little bit uh, like less fun uh, than uh, than actually just being able to spend most of my time just thinking about science. So uh, and journal science journalism is great because uh, you're also not stuck into a, one particular idea or category. So I've covered everything in science over over these many years. But uh, so after I graduated from uh, from college, I went off and got a succession of jobs at first at a little newspaper, then in a medium-sized newspaper. But and I've been at NPR now since 1986, so that's why I say this is ancient history. But uh, uh, but uh, yeah, but it's uh, basically taking the sensibility of science with me and understanding how scientists think about science really helps me tell these stories. So now I'm I'm curious to to go from ancient history to the present. How, <laughs> how is how has reporting on science changed over the course of your career? Oh well, uh, the uh, well, uh, the internet was invented. That helped a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I remember, you know, back in the day when we were covering the, the the announcement of the Nobel Prize, I would go to a book called Who's Who and look people up in the library to see who they, you know, that was, you know, step one to figure out if I could figure out who these people were, uh, and you know, um, but. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much more availability of information. But some of the fundamentals remain the same. For example, when I'm looking at a, a study that's been published and trying to decide whether it's worth following up on, one thing I do is I look in the references and see um, uh, what other studies have been quoted and so on. Now, of course, it's much easier to track down those individuals and figure out, look, even read many of those papers and figure out what was what was said. But it's a it's a, an idea that that still is durable, which is that science builds on uh, on you know the shoulders of other people who've done work, and sometimes uh, it, it involves people who disagree. So it's always nice to get the reference. That, like you know, some people say my work is junk. You know, reference number six. And then I'm oh maybe I'll call reference six and see what see what what the backstory is there. Although of course people don't ever put it in that pointed a term. It's like there's been some discrepancy about these uh, you know interpretation of these findings. Uh, it's like that's still reference six. I'm going to it. But so so some of the reporting, uh, the tools have changed, but the basic reporting I would say has not. Yeah, certainly science has, has changed a fair amount in terms of the things that's emerged too. Uh, yeah, thanks for the, the internet note, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I had noticed something like that too. Uh, um, hey, I, I, I wanted to ask you, this sort of as a follow-up some of, on uh, some of the earlier conversation related to the idea of, of talking about science and presenting science. And I, I think that, that the idea that there's uncertainty and that there might still be some some things that are that remain to be known. There, my, my frustration is often that I, I think that, that results are reported with a, a false sense of certainty and precision when, in fact, there's often a, there's, there's more noise in the system. And, and I, I just wonder what, what you think about that or what are some of the ways that, that, you, that you challenge yourself or, or in terms of how, how am I going to convey that this number isn't a, you know, a known with ex, ex, this exact sense that there's some, there's some noise in it, some 
Yeah. And the, 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 let me take two swipes at this. First of which is that, you know, editors always say, you know, well, what's, what, what should we tell people to do? And that pushes you, particularly for health studies, that pushes you to say, well, this means, you you know, you should eat more oatmeal or this means you should eat less oatmeal or whatever, whatever the finding of the day is without recognizing that there's so much noise, particularly in nutrition studies, that, uh, that any single study really should not be the basis uh, for, for, for a behavior change with, with extraordinarily few exceptions. The other thing I do is I really look at the strength of what's being reported. And often scientists will uh, like to couch stu- uh, their results in a way that make their results seem bigger than they are. They will often say, you know, this doubled the risk of, of this event, and so we should take serious consideration of it. But I will, I will unpack that and say, instead of looking at the relative risk, I will look at the absolute risk and say, it doubled the risk from one in a million to two in a million. Uh, if that's the case, it's like, I'm still not going to be concerned about this. So, so digging into the numbers uh, is, is something I, I do myself and I encourage all of my colleagues to do to really make sure that you're characterizing things, not in a way that just makes it seem as big and impressive as possible, which is often a temptation in a newsroom or anywhere else, and including in a scientific lab where they want their results to seem as impressive as possible. But I also think that that's not the best way for people to actually be able to embrace and understand uh, the magnitude of what they're talking about. In in spite of the title of your book, Rigor Mortis, you're very you seem hopeful. You talk about a new generation of young scientists that are trained different. There's a movement, open science movement out there. Even I think what the work that you do in the sort of public arena has brought to light some some problems that could open this up a little bit more. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that uh, this gets back to the reproducibility awakening, I think. people Once people are aware of something like this, uh, they can then ask, well, what tools can we use to, to fix this? And some of the tools are very simple. For example, uh, I talk a bit in my book about uh, contaminated cell lines. People think that they're working with, with cells in their, in their Petri dishes that are from, say, a breast cancer, when in fact it's a completely different cell. It may be a melanoma cell. And, uh, and uh, people back in the day when, when cell culture studies started, people couldn't really tell these things apart, but now there are powerful and not very expensive tools to actually go ahead and figure out the identity of those. And so there's now an expectation actually from the NIH that scientists should actually validate their cell lines and make sure that they're working with the cells that they think they're working with. And uh, so that's a, that's a simple step to uh, to help reduce the amount of noise uh, that's generated, ac- you know, accidental information that's coming out. Not Again, not malicious on the part of the scientists, but just, you know, uh, Unaware, and people are thinking about this in terms of all sorts of other things. Uh, uh, in uh, you know, whether it's thinking about better ingredients or thinking about uh, more carefully about what statistical methods they should be using or experimental designs to make sure that uh, that they're that they are setting up an experiment to get a, uh, a credible and meaningful result. And um, uh, if you know, that's actually uh, one of one thing. Uh, that encouraged me as I was doing my reporting was to realize that there was a, actually a fairly similar crisis to this back in the uh, 1980s and, and into the 1990s around clinical medicine. These are studies involving human beings, uh, and and many of these studies were too small. They basically uh, did not, pro- even if they were finished, they didn't produce uh, results that were that were 
credible because they were, you know, they the the experiments were designed well and so on. And sometimes people would change the change their target halfway through. They would say, "I'm studying this," and if it turns out that that wasn't coming out well for them, they'd say, "Oh well, oh, I meant to say I'm studying something else," uh, and uh, and they would publish those studies. So, but there's been a lot of progress uh, over the years to to address those issues in clinical research and uh, and and it's certainly still those problems still persist but they are much less uh, present than they were before so these studies are designed carefully so most importantly or one of the most important things is that scientists have to register their studies in a database called clinicaltrials.gov often and and this basically says up front here's what my design is here's what i'm looking for for my endpoint so if i change my endpoint i uh, you will know that i have uh, been monkeying around with with a scientific process here perhaps inappropriately and uh, and ultimately, here are my results. Um, although many people actually uh, ignore the dictum that they must publish their results, even if they're negative results, they're supposed to put them into clinicaltrials.gov. So people can say, well, you know, here was a failed experiment. Even if they don't feel like ever publishing their their results, they are accessible to people who who care to dig for them. So so that is that's an idea that uh, has proven quite. Uh, useful in clinical medicine, and people are are experimenting with that in in other areas in 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 biomedical the preclinical area of biomedical research and in social sciences and so on and and saying hey this is an idea that we should be adopting as well and and that's starting to happen. What advice would you give for uh, a young journalist who wants to be a science reporter? Um, you know, we particularly here in our journalism program sometimes have students who are. Um, scared of statistics is the nice way, I think, to say it. So how would you, what advice would you give to a, a reporter who wants to cover science and cover it well um, about how to do that? Yeah, well, I I think it helps a lot to really understand how science works. So I think that having an undergraduate degree, at least in an area of science, is a valuable idea. Um, we are increasingly seeing in this field uh, people with PhDs because they go through the entire process I described earlier in academics, uh, science, and they realize, you know, the rat race is too much, or I can't find a, a job in academia after this, and uh, and so then they say, well, what what other career could I have? Uh, and uh, some people choose science journalism. So so we see some 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 actual PhDs now in this area, including uh, uh, a couple of my colleagues at NPR have PhDs, and um, uh, it's a. Uh, so, so, so I think you know understanding that. I think obviously, if you're really afraid of numbers, I think science is probably not a really good uh, choice for you as a coverage area or business. I would add, but uh, but I also know that uh, that many people have had long and successful careers, uh, even though they may have struggled to figure out what a, how to calculate a percentage. So, so it's not a, it's not an ironclad thing, but I think it's it's an incredibly powerful, uh, useful tool, and I think it makes people better journalists if they if they can do. That. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to, you know, get a, a degree in uh, in uh, biostatistics or something like that. But to but not to be but to be comfortable enough not to be scared off by looking at 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 the way science is, is published, which includes looking at you know the statistics that include that are in a paper and and figure and knowing how to, for example. Uh, Figure out what it, and what the absolute risk is, as opposed to just a relative risk, which, uh, which as I mentioned earlier, I think is a very important way of of characterizing the the strength and the importance of of findings. You know, it's I, I found it just delighted. I'm delighted to have, to talk to someone who who titles a, a 
piece they worked on, Statistician's Call to Arms, Reject Significance <laughs> and Embrace Uncertainty. I'm, I'll join you in that parade, you know, but... Uh, so one thing I wanted to ask you about, though, that's the sort of follow-up on, on telling stories about pretty complicated methods and, and situations, was a piece you did on artificial intelligence, predictive modeling, and health screening. I'm thinking that you've got some real challenges to try to, to weave that together. And I was trying to think about a, preparing us, a, a, maybe it's a stat student to tell the story or a journalist, journalism student to tell the story. So what, what are some of the, the recommendations of how you approach such a, a, an interesting and challenging story? Yeah, well, I guess the first step is to find the story, right? I mean, we know that artificial intelligence is a, is a, is a as a topic is is mushrooming, and there's just there's no end of people. I probably get three press releases a day from people saying, "Oh, we have a new AI device that does X, Y, Z." So, uh, so there's no there's no shortage of 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 claims and and hype, I will say, around artificial intelligence. But the but my challenge is, you know, f find human beings who are who are engaged in this, uh, either scientists who are doing interesting work or individual human beings who's who you know are uh, being screened by a device that is you know basically instead of a doctor is artificial uh, an artificial intelligence agent, uh, and 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 dig into it and then ask you know look around find. Uh, find the people who are excited, but also find the people who will raise notes of caution about these things. And then, of course, the the goal is to is to balance that uh, to make sure that both are are, are captured uh, and given their due weight. It you know uh, doesn't mean that equal weight is necessary, but uh, that's part of the judgment of the journalist is figuring out. You know, do you believe the skeptics more than you believe the the advocates, or 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 or. Or, or the other way around and act accordingly. Richard, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here. It was my pleasure. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.